Hi, this is Rodney Dietert, and this is The Probiotic Life. This podcast is where we explore the intricate relationships between human health, soil health, and ecological systems. Join me now for another exploratory conversation on the probiotic life. Welcome, welcome once again to The Probiotic Life. I'm your host, Ben Klenner. Today on the show, we are talking all about the microbiome. Uh, We get into this great interview with Dr. Rodney Dieterd. Now, Rodney is an emeritus professor of immunotoxicology at Cornell University. And he's been doing this stuff. He's been studying this stuff for a long time. I saw his book, The Human Superorganism, How the Microbiome is Revolutionizing the Pursuit of a Healthy Life. I saw that and I thought, I want to get that guy on the show. Uh, I listened to his, the audio book of that because I've been really getting into audio books lately. And I thought it was fascinating. It was a, a well laid out thesis about how the microbiome, what we're learning about the microbiome is it changes the way we do stuff. It changes the way that we go about uh, pursuing health. And to me, it really shows me that being connected with nature is really where it's at. It's, re- it's where, where we've uh, lived for, for you know, millennia. And it's only been recently that we've come into all these issues. So we go into that stuff. Um, we talk about the book and he shares about his story as well because, you know, I like to hear about how people got to where they are you know, what sort of mindsets took them there. So now that's what we go into on the episode today. I want to say thank you very much for everybody who has subscribed to the podcast because that really helps us, uh, keeps us going. And also talking about audiobooks, Amazon Australia have finally got their affiliate program up and running. So if you want to buy an audiobook or an ebook or a good old fashioned hard copy of the book, uh, click on the link in the notes. And, th- and when you purchase through that link, you'll actually be supporting the podcast. And in fact, I'll be doing that for all of the books that we recommend and mention on the podcast here. That just helps support the podcast. Uh, In terms of supporting the podcast, if you are into soil health, check out microbiometer.com. That's a way that you can really test the microbial biomass in your soil. So when you go uh, purchase one of those from microbiometer.com, enter the promo code probioticlife and you'll get $10 off your purchase. Now, if you've been curious about what I've been up to, the last couple episodes, I started sharing a little bit about that on the intro of the podcast, but I haven't had much of a response to that. So I'll leave that for the Instagram account. You can check it out at The Probiotic Life on Instagram, and I'll be sharing a bunch of stuff through the stories. Uh, 
So, without further ado, let's get into this fascinating interview with Dr. Rodney Dieterd. Our guest today is a professor of immunotoxicology at Cornell University. He has become an internationally renowned author, educator, and scientist known for his work on the microbiome and the immune system. Now, not only has he been a faculty at Cornell since 1977 and published many peer-reviewed papers, but he's traveled the world giving lectures and keynotes in a variety of forums. He may be most well-known for his book, The Human Superorganism, How the Microbiome is Revolutionizing the Pursuit of a Healthy Life. Welcome to the show, Dr. Rodney Dieter. Thanks very much, Ben. And uh, you, so you are at Cornell at the moment, is that right? That's correct. I should say that just a few weeks ago in January, uh, I became emeritus professor. And so what that means is I can continue the same work I'm doing, uh, but have a little more flexibility, which is a wonderful thing. Fantastic. And you've had the opportunity of uh, sharing about the work that you've been doing all around the world. Is that right? Yes, most recently at the National Academies of Sciences uh, down in Washington, D.C., uh, in a wonderful forum that combined um, infectious diseases and environmental factors and risk factors for those. And I got to lecture about the microbiome and the immune system relative to risk of infectious disease, which is uh, really important and complements the material that I covered in the human superorganism. Yes, well, I, I uh, just finished uh, going through that book, and that was fantastic. And we'll get to that, but take us back a little bit on on your journey of how you actually came uh, to be a professor at Cornell. And I believe there was a um, uh, you mentioned a, a summer high school research experience that sort of uh, got you on this path. Exactly. I, I'd always been interested in science since a very young age, and participated in science fairs, and my dad was important in coaching and encouraging me in that regard. Uh, but the, the real breakthrough was uh, uh, after my junior uh, high school year uh, to be able to go out to the University of Arizona in Tucson and participate in a, a National Science Foundation-funded program for high schoolers um, in, in sciences, and it covered uh, uh, all of the natural physical sciences, and I got to work in a genetics lab while I was there. I thought I wanted to be a geneticist, and I really trained in immunogenetics or genetics of the immune system. Um, But once I got to Cornell, my career evolved, and I really became more of an environmental scientist, um, but still using my genetic background. But that summer, just being exposed to the whole range of sciences, and it was during the the summer of the moonwalk, the moon landing. Uh, So it was extremely exciting and and really propelled me uh, on my my vision for a a career in science. Mm Mm-hmm. And, and your vision, what, what do you say, what formed that vision? Like what actually really drove you to be like, yes, this is what I want to do. This is what I want to divert my life's work to. Well, there was a there was a really important. Uh, it, it's a small book, uh, and it was written by a, a, a prominent geneticist uh, from Caltech, and, and available back in the in the '60s when I was a high schooler. And uh, it was called "The Biological Basis of Human Freedom." And what interested me about this book was here was this famous plant geneticist writing about 
how you could really view science more broadly for the benefit of human society. And um, around, you know, uh, in my younger days, I also had a chance to vis visit the Smithsonian Institute and the Aaron Science Museum. And so I've been very interested in how we can really use science for the benefit of, of health, to help, uh, life quality, and, and societal benefits. And so that's really my passion is, you might say, uh, translational science or applying science. So it really is for hum human and planetary benefit. And uh, because I think that's, that's in the end, you know, people, people have tax, tax dollars going to research and they want to see the results. And we hear about it in, in terms of uh, breakthroughs in cancer research and things like that. But there can be more fundamental benefit that comes down to day-to-day -day life in terms of, benef of, uh, uh, of helping positive change and promote positive change. And that's where I think the microbiome and better understanding the immune system and how we're, we're all connected via microbes on earth uh, is really important and can, can help make those changes. So that book, seeing a, a hardcore uh, geneticist, famous geneticist, um, write a book about societal changes and benefits and how freedom is actually connected to genetics um, was really important in showing me that that you can be a scientist and you can be in the world and supporting benefits um, both for humans and for planet Earth. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what I really got out of the human superorganism is you conveyed the information in a way that it was relatable to uh, a non-academic well, it's really important because, uh, of course, we can get very specialized in our sciences, and we're very good about having specialized terms or what we, we call jargon for each of our science disciplines. And, of course, that allows us talk to, to talk to each other, but to no one else in any meaningful way. And so it's really important that we be able to um, to convey meanings so that people understand it in their own lives. And uh, I think, you know, I'd credit my wife, uh, Janice Dietert, and, of course, the, the editors of the, the, the publisher that helped with this book were instrumental in uh, helping me translate any technical terms to something that would be readable in the end. And um, so we're planning a second book, and I think it will e extend off of and encompass more about uh, daily life and not just health. And uh, my hope is it'll be as readable as the human superorganism. Mm -hmm. Well, I ho sure hope so. It was uh, a fantastic read. So, so take me back to 1977. You're, you're at Cornell University. Uh, you've got all this uh, opportunity ahead of you. What, what are you thinking? What are you, what are you focusing on then? Well, I should say my whole career has been uh, a matter of change and being ready to, used to and ready to accept and make changes. So I came to Cornell hired into a department that no longer exists, uh, the poultry science department. And I was, my job description was to breed genetically naturally healthier chickens. So their immune system uh, was more able to fight disease, and they were just better fit. But as a geneticist, well, it turned out that in those days, vertebrate genetics, genetics or higher organism genetics, including human genetics, was uh, 
not really as much in vogue in terms of the research monies. People were funding uh, fruit fly genetics and things like that. And so I was a little out of water with the, the some of the communities at Cornell and some of the funding that was available uh, working on chickens. Uh, yet they were the number one meat source in the U.S. and the world, for that matter, protein meat source. So um, it was an important approach. But in addition, it had relevance to, to human health. A lot of the vitamin discoveries were occurring. And just before I came to Cornell, they were occurring in, in work on poultry, uh, some of the first vitamins uh, discovered in, in great nutritional research. And I was in a department that was integrating nutrition and food science and, and genetics and physiology. And, and that's what you actually like. That's, that's kind of the business model you would form if you were doing things. So it was a great place to be. But ironically, uh, genetics on higher organisms, that wasn't uh, uh, a, a real great place to be for funding. And so what happened was I wound up getting money to do toxicology and environmental sciences and environmental work uh, along with one of my colleagues who was there. And uh, all of a sudden, I'm getting funding to work on environmental factors rather than genetic factors. And that continued on. So eventually I became director of the Toxicology Institute at Cornell and the Breast Cancer and Environmental Risk Factors Program. And my whole career has been dealing with environmental factors, although my training just prior to that was in genetics. So that's one of the ironies is you keep learning when you're at a university and you should keep learning, even as a faculty member. And that learning may just change your your career and what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And you... yeah. Uh- from what I understand, you focused on um, the health of children quite a bit as well. Is that right? Right. It turns out that while I started working on chickens, uh, the chicks and children uh, are actually more similar than you might think, uh, particularly where we were raising our, uh, our, our chickens in a very controlled environment. We could control everything, the food, the air, the water, probiotics, everything. And you can learn a lot from that, just as the vitamin discoveries. And so, um, eventually, that department closed. I wound up in an immunology microbiology department in the veterinary college. And that was a real blessing in the end, because then my focus shifted from um, production animals and their health to children. And early life. I'd always worked on early life. And I translated that over to humans. And we know that programming of the immune system, other physiological systems in in the womb and in the infant um, is really important. So the, the protection of the environment for the baby uh, pays huge dividends in terms of health across a lifetime. And uh, that was the same in chickens. It's the same in humans. Um, so that really translated to me working on the developing immune system, working on environmental factors, whether they were through diet or environmental chemicals or drugs, and working on safety and how you would measure that, how you would test for whether something was harmful or not harmful, uh, particularly for the immune system. And uh, so I spent a lot of my career doing that uh, prior to eventually working on the microbiome. So in the book, you uh, mention uh, one of the main themes of the book is about non-communicable diseases and the, the epidemic of that, um, what's happening. Now, when, when did that start to, um, you start to take note of that in your career? 
Uh, right about 2009, 2008, 2009. And um, I had been looking, uh, literally, it's interesting, one of my hobbies was uh, in Scottish his history and in the goldsmiths of Edinburgh and their training. And I was very interested in master-apprentice relationships, and I'd been mapping out as kind of a, a side hobby scholarly work, uh, how that training progressed over 500 years, because you could look at idea development and styles. And so I was looking at these pedigree trees, essentially of training in the Scottish goldsmiths, and I realized, wow, you can see relationships here. And if you start to look at human disease, you can see some things that look rather similar. So it's kind of ironic that I was working in a totally disparate area of my own interest and as a hobby, and I'm looking at uh, relationships between uh, style development and training and pedigrees, you might say, of that. And then all of a sudden, I'm looking at pedigrees of disease development in humans and realizing that a cohort of children that are diagnosed with childhood asthma or with type 1 diabetes have a very predictable combination of diseases that that group of children are more likely to face as they age and grow old and and go through life. And we call those comorbid diseases. So I realized that we know a whole lot more about relationships among these diseases and why this epidemic is marching forward across all of these diseases, really. What the, what, what, is the tie that binds. And so that became apparent, but it, but it was sort of quite by accident. I'm looking at a series of, of decorative art, 500 years of Scottish history training for producing gold and silver, and all of a sudden realized that tells me something about the connectivity of chronic diseases or non-communicable diseases in humans. So I started to look at the literature and collaborated with, with some wonderful colleagues that were also working on the immune system and toxicology. And along with that, had a series of three papers that were published showing the connectivity of these diseases and that we, we knew that once they started in a population of children or young adults, that you were on a march toward additional chronic diseases that were going to require medical treatment and drugs and would, in many cases, inhibit quality of life and might even require caregivers to be available to help if we did nothing different than we've been doing. So it really led to not just an understanding of the relationship of, of asthma and lung cancer and the relationship of psoriasis and skin cancer and the relationship of, of celiac and gastrointestinal cancers and, uh, and a whole host of other things, including behavioral and neurological disorders, uh, to see these relationships and then to say, you know, what we're doing isn't working. We have this vast program through organizations like uh, you know WHO and CDC and others, and they track these, and they have smoking cessation and things like that that are programs. But in the end, what we're doing medically is not stopping this epidemic. And if we're going to stop the epidemic, we're going to have to do things differently. We're going to have to do them fundamentally differently, and we're particularly going to have to do them during early life so that children do not enter the realm of non-communicable diseases. Yeah, it's interesting how when you find those 
patterns in in different areas of your life that they you they link together and they actually form something that is like okay maybe I should pay attention to this. That's um I always find that interesting. We seem to come back to that on this uh, on this podcast quite a bit. So in in that sort of um, time is that when you wrote the the paper called the the completed self hypothesis. Right. Well, that was a matter of of serendipity, or, or we might say gut instincts that that were not part of my scientific thinking. So that happened right around 2012. Uh, it was 2009, 2010 were when the the noncommunicable disease comorbid comorbidity papers were published, and then I had an invitation to write a paper um, for a special issue of what was more a physics-oriented journal called Entropy. And that special issue was going to deal with the most important biological signs that you could measure that would be important in, in health. And so I was challenged to identify the, the most important single measurement you could make that would best predict in a newborn baby whether that baby's life was filled with health or filled with disease. So that was just, to me, that was such an intriguing question. I had to tackle that paper. I couldn't say no. I had to do it. Because, you know, I mean, what would you measure? What, what is the single thing you could measure that would be the best predictor? And we understand that during life, you know, you, you eat different foods, you're exposed to different environments, uh, urban air pollution, or maybe you grow up on a farm. You, so there are all kinds of differences that affect our health during life. But nevertheless, if you could have a measure early on that would tell you what that baby's health was, li- was likely to be like across the lifespan, that would be golden. So I thought I knew the answer because I'd worked again for decades here on the developing immune system and protecting the developing immune system. And so I thought surely within this decades of work, the answer's there. And I started to write that paper and got a couple paragraphs in and it was total garbage. I couldn't convince myself of pretty much any any line of thinking I was going along. And I was really frustrated about it and just set it aside and went to bed that night and then woke up about 3.30 in the morning from what was an incredible dream. And I don't, I woke up like, wow, have I been dreaming? And I don't actually remember the content of the dream, but but it was sort of like, wow, have I been dreaming? Wow, do I have this idea? And the idea was that the answer to that was, measurement of self-completion or the so-called completed self-hypothesis. And that is that the baby as born is, as a human mammal, is incomplete and is only completed by the microbes, the microbiome, the the bacteria, fungi, archaea, uh, viruses, uh, bacteriophages that are all part and help make up our microbiome. And so that baby has to self-complete. And the extent to which that baby effectively self-completes is the single best measurement you could make at that time predicting health versus disease for that baby. And so my wife helped me disentangle kind of my middle-of-the-night thoughts. And we wrote that paper together. And I thought, well, this is this is a really nice paper. It's in this journal that probably nobody will see because you, you wouldn't go looking for biology there necessarily. And yet two filmmakers in the UK saw it 
And they had this idea of making a, a, a documentary film about birth, and they eventually made it called Microbirth was the film. And uh, they featured me, I think, in 19 segments in that uh, film, along, uh, and there were many, many incredible researchers, Martin Blazer and others that were uh, in, in the film, um, talking about birth and uh, and the microbiome and, and factors surrounding healthy babies. So... Uh, that film won the 2014 Life Sciences Award, uh, has gotten terrific recognition. Uh, again, brilliant filmmakers that produced that. And it was an opportunity to explain this paper and this hypothesis. And that then led to many more papers and an evolution of the idea that we really have to change how we do uh, safety for humans and for the planet, how we do uh, medicine and pre both preventative and therapeutics uh, because we have never vetted chemicals and drugs with the microbiome in mind, at least to date. And so that's a problem. Uh, and, and so among the papers we wrote uh, was one that I did with Dr. Ellen Silbergeld at Johns Hopkins University School of Public Health, in which we basically said, you know, the, the models we've used for determining whether a chemical or a drug is safe are not safe and what happens in the human body and the risk of clinical disease excluded the microbiome. Uh, in the U.S., that, those models date to 1987, the National Research Council model, and we didn't know to have the microbiome there. But now we know the microbiome is, or microbes are the first things to see chemicals, drugs, and food. Because where are they sitting? Well, they're sitting in the mouth, in the nose, in the gut, on our skin, in the urogenital tract in our airways. So they see food, drugs, pollutants before any mammalian cell in our body sees it. And what they do with that, how they react to it, how their enzymes metabolize it, how they change, and how they change food, drugs, and chemicals determines the impact on our health. So that's the front line. It's our gateway and our filter. It's our, our access point to the, to the external world and understanding that should come first, not be ignored or as an afterthought. So it really means turning on, the, turning on its head how we do safety and medicine. And that's been really my talks uh, most recently is, you know, we've, we've got to rethink this and we've got to change things. And the microbiome should come first. So that paper in 2012 led to many more, including one that, that got the best paper of the year award in, uh, in teratology from the Society of Teratology, or Teratology Society, I should say, and led to an advocacy, science-based advocacy for changing how we do medicine and how we do safety, uh, putting the microbes first. Uh, now, why would we do that? Well, they're 99% of our genes. They contribute 99% of the genes in our body and those genes are doing things just like our chromosomal genes are doing. They're metabolizing food, drugs, chemicals. They're changing it. They're making uh, molecules that signal. They can actually help regulate uh, our behavior and our food cravings and our mood. And uh, so if you wanted to naturally treat depression, for example, major depressive disorder, Rather than taking hardcore drugs with side effects, you should go right to the 
to the gut microbes because there are more neuroactive peptides or neurotransmitters made in the gut than in the brain. And a lot of those are made directly by the microbes and or by cells that are under the control of factors produced by the microbes. So we're now seeing a whole different approach to to human physiology and health that is really based on starting with the 99% of the genes, not the 1%. And it's interesting you um, liken our microbiome to a coral reef or to a, a tropical jungle. Uh, I find that very interesting that it's like, okay, well, what, what are the similarities there? You go into that in the book. But what really interests me is this horizontal gene transfer. What does it mean to have all this um, genetic material that's not ours? And I'd love for you to go into that a little bit. Right. Well, we are uh, analogous to a walking coral reef. So we have thousands of, if you just look at the bacteria alone as one part of the microbiome, we, you know, we have about a thousand different species in the, in the gut and, and uh, probably close to that on the skin and uh, several hundred in the, your genital tract and, and, and uh, again, several hundred in the respiratory system. So, you know, we are, we are walking around with, uh, many, many, thousands of different species. We are not a single species. No complex organism on Earth is a single species. We are all superorganisms. And so we need to think of ourselves differently. It doesn't mean we're not awesome and special. We are. We're maybe the best mi- microbe disseminator on, on Earth. We, we travel all over the place. We leave our microbes in hotel rooms and cars and everywhere we go. And so we're, uh, you know, we're kind of the Johnny Appleseed of, of, <laughs> of microbes in a sense. But once you start to think of yourself as, as your well-being, your, your integral core self is not a single species. It's a reflection of life on Earth because this is a microbial planet. And that's actually what we're going to deal with more in the next book coming up is, is all that surrounds that. So that means that you want to take care and manage uh, that part of you as well, to recognize it and to embrace it, but also to manage it for your better health. Because we can, uh, we can control the microbes that are going to be growing on and in us to a large extent. Uh, and once we know that that's an important thing to do. And so that becomes very, very important in terms of our well-being. Um, and it's really important that physicians recognize that. And, and I've, one of the messages I have for physicians is, if you treat with an antibiotic that's broad spectrum and you're killing bacteria that, that were not the pathogen, that's removing part of the human body. That's, that's not that different than cutting off an arm. And if you killed something you did not intend to kill, physicians should put it back. So, very simple. Mm-hmm. Do no harm means don't go killing 500 different species of bacteria in the gut that were not the target of your drug therapy. If you don't have specific drug therapy, then understand where the patient is and help restore the body, restore the genes and the microbes that were needed so that that person is not more vulnerable for a, another infection a little bit later. 
right. that year or next year. Uh, so, you know, that that's kind of the message. Relative to genes, it is very interesting because these microbes are not all, you know, they're communicating with each other. And that's one of the reasons you can use microbes to fight microbes because there is something called colonization resistance. And again, that does go back to my old days in poultry because there was a period in the 80s and 90s where uh, risk of salmonella and E. coli infection, not just in birds, but in humans, uh, in, in food and in eggs was a big concern. And people stopped eating eggs because of, of concern about salmonella that had cropped up. Well, what? how did the poultry industry respond. Uh, what they did is they figured out that if they, they control what goes into those birds. So they decided that they could use something, an emerging concept in the 70s and 80s called the Nermi concept, or we now know it as, as a colonization-resistant approach. They loaded the birds up with lactobacillus acidophilus, the good old bacteria in a number of yogurts. And they found that if they loaded those birds up with that, they could severely reduce salmonella's capacity to gain a foothold and to be spread, to be spread across chickens and to be spread to humans through eggs. And so they basically solved the problem. And you hear a lot about the very negative thing of antibiotic prophylactic use in animal feed, which is terrible. But you may not have heard as much about probiotic use for decades in things like the poultry industry, where there are literally pennies of profit on whether it's individual birds or dozens of eggs, uh, there's very little profit margin. So they don't buy things to feed birds unless it's going to pay off. And this is a 30 to 40 year success story that proves that probiotics can work if you have the right probiotic administered the right way and you understand how it's going to actually benefit the process through which it benefits. Mm -hmm. So um, that's that's an example that these bacteria are interacting. So you can actually exclude pathogens by setting up the, the, the bacteria that you want in the right locations in your body. Um, but there's also gene transfer that goes on. So the idea is the mitochondria in our cells really look like a vestigial bacterium. They were something so important to early life on Earth and complex life that it wasn't just a matter of having bacteria growing with some other, uh, what we would say are eukaryotic cells, nucleated cells, but they actually, at some point, engulfed these bacteria and probably changed them a little bit and figured out how to carry them around in parts of the cell, not the nucleus, but the cytoplasm, carry them around permanently using those genes. And we know we get a lot of energy from our mitochondria. Their function is incredibly important for our health as well. Well, these are ancient bacteria. And you can trace back and show exactly, you know, uh, their relationships to to uh, uh, ancient bacteria. So that that's the ultimate in horizontal gene transfer is just just capture just capture the organism and keep uh, keep it in your uh, in every cell you make. Uh, but in addition to that, there there are genes in in humans that we have captured the gene or we've we've. Uh, embraced it, and also bacteria will share genes. And this can be a good thing or a bad thing. They can share 
resistance to antibiotic genes. And that's something you have to worry about. So every time you're treated with antibiotics, you have more back more of those genes that, that are selected for among the remaining bacteria in your gut or on your skin, and those get shared around. So you, it's the reason why you don't want um, antibiotics used unless they are really medically necessary, and you certainly don't want them used uh, routinely in animal feed. You don't want them released in the environment, and you don't want antibiotic-resistant genes uh, being selected for and then distributed and shared horizontally. So there is a lot of flow that goes on, and bacteria can actually form uh, complex structures themselves in which they they dole out different tasks, and, the, and these are what are called biofilms. And we know biofilms is usually being a health threat for us when they can can uh, help block immune attack against uh, pathogens. But biofilms can also show us the way in which uh, microbes can actually form things that aren't that dissimilar from uh, a, a much more complex organism. Again, where they have different different parts of a, a three dimensional structure. Um, of colonies of bacteria are actually carrying out different tasks for the greater good of the the whole. Mm. Well, you know, one of the focuses uh, and things that really come back to here on the podcast is we make the connection between soil health and human health. And uh, we talk about regenerative agriculture, which is the idea that we're um, building healthy soil, healthy soil is building healthy plants, healthy plants. We eat them or our, the animals eat them and we become healthy. So um, we've looked at Korean natural farming, which is a, a sort of a subsistence way of farming, but it's a, about creating indigenous or um, culturing indigenous microorganisms and then using those to make our plants healthy. Now, I find that sounds like this actually really um, connects well with what you're saying of um, creating a probiotic life, creating uh, the right environment for these these microbes to um, inoculate ourselves with the right kind of microbes. Do you have any experience in the the agriculture side of what we're talking about? Yeah, well, uh, while that has not been my main research focus, I've had the opportunity to lecture in programs. One of them was in the the, the summit series. Uh, actually, it was on a cruise ship where I was able to sh to do a joint presentation with a soil microbiologist, and it was just it was magnificent, absolutely outstanding. To because that is real life. We we live our life either in an urban environment, a megacity or maybe out in nature, on a farm, uh, where we have different exposures, different experiences. And it is absolutely vital, you're absolutely correct, that we are connected to the soil microbes. They are connected to microbes in air, in the upper atmosphere, and in, uh, in, in water, in the oceans. Uh, it's a continuum. And we have relatives in extreme places. Let me tell you, we, you know, we we have uh, these uh, extremophile uh, bacteria and archaea, uh, and their relatives are found in uh, uh, Yellowstone geysers and in glaciers uh, uh, in the dark. I should say, 300 feet 
uh, under uh, glaciers in Antarctica, uh, in the uh, Marianas Trench, in the Dead Sea, the Great Salt Lake, the most extreme places on, and in the upper atmosphere, the stratosphere. And some of them are growing on the space station, the outside of the space station. So we, we have microbial relatives there. And, and, and uh, that continuum of, of distribution and health and well-being of the microbes is, is critical. Earth is a microbial planet, first and foremost. And when we damage those populations, we ultimately are, are damaging not just our food sources, but our own health uh, as well. So the two are related. We need to protect ourselves and we need to protect the microbes that are outside of our body as well. And we've known immunologically, for example, that Children uh, who were born and grew up on animal farms that did not use pesticides have a lower risk of these so-called chronic diseases like, like asthma. Uh, and always wondered why that was the case. Well, we now understand that it is both the seeding of the microbiome that's really important, but also living a life in which you're surrounded by microbes that are in soil, that are on animals, that are, uh, and uh, that that is vitally important for your immune system to become educated, to become trained, and to be able to protect you against life-threatening diseases, but not self-destruct. And I can assure you that immune system deprived of a microbiome will, will in the end begin a process in which your own body is destroyed. It's just a matter of waiting for the time and the signals and the, the problems to arise. So that's what happens when you're depleted of a microbiome is the immune system is not educated, it's not trained, and it's not balanced. And inflammation will develop within the body directed against our own tissues and organs. So one of the big fallacies is that in a newborn baby, the immune system is completely ready to go and balanced and everything's just fine and you don't need anything else. And that's what I learned when I was a graduate student, what I probably taught in the 1970s at Cornell, and it's wrong. That dogma is wrong. The immune system has to become trained, balanced, uh, and, and inflammation properly regulated, and that occurs by the exposure to the microbial part of our body, in the, on the skin, in the gut, in the airways, in your genital tract, and the like. So without that, we're headed for, we're headed for disease and, and, um, and not the life we deserve. Mm -hmm. there's, there's a lot of fear, though, isn't there, about... Um, getting outside and getting dirty. I know there's more of a movement back to that now, and that's what we promote here on The Probiotic Life. But there's still that fear of, well, I don't want my my um, kids to get sick by, you know, playing um, out in the dirt or, or um, getting into situations where they might pick up some sort of virus. Yeah, well, it, I'm not suggesting that you deliberately put yourself into, uh, for example, uh, typhus-contaminated water. To you know, there there are there's a balance, there's a happy medium between being able to um, to garden, to work in microbe-rich soils, to do you know, I mean, 
my wife and I firmly believe we're healthier when we can be out working with microbe-rich soils and gardening. Um, a little vitamin D and a little soil microbes is a really good thing. Um, so there is a happy medium but uh, where you, you don't deliberately expose yourself to high doses of pathogens. It, it's a balance. But if you are deprived of your microbes, if you're depleted, that's the fastest way for any exposure to a pathogen to get you sick. So you should look at it that, that you really are planning to fill your body up with useful microbes and essentially in doing so, help better protect you against the very thing you fear, which is infectious disease in this case. The other thing is it's a matter of, well, uh, do, I, do I accept this risk that uh, I could always encounter some pathogen that might be a problem if I'm out playing in, in soil? Um, but in the end, it's probably going to protect me against asthma and cancer, obesity, inflammatory bowel, arthritis, atherosclerosis, heart disease, yeah. So the trade-off is get your hands in the soil. One of the problems is we think we're doing such a great job with greening the cities. We're not. They're microbial wasteland. And people have to go to heroic measures at the moment to really do what they need to do to have these microbial exposures. And at the same time, to be careful about... Uh, Things like urban air pollution, uh, for example, um, in with pregnant women. So if you're in the womb or if you're an infant, your risk of childhood asthma is directly related to the, the distance your home is located relative to a major traffic artery. So think about that. You know, that there's a direct epidemiological relationship, and we now understand the mechanisms of why that relationship exists. So it's not to say you shouldn't live in an urban area. It's to say we've been deluding ourselves in terms of thinking we're doing such a great job by 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 having a park um, in a particular community and that that's all it takes. In the meantime, we're, we're doing things like uh, building sports fields that are on uh, heavy metal contaminated uh, soil that was brought in, things like that, which again, we think it's great. Get out, play sports, and you don't realize you're getting exposed to heavy metal toxicants, maybe at a higher level than you would be would be otherwise. So, we we've got to rethink some things and do them differently. For sure, um, it's amazing to to see how much um, of our lifestyle actually it will is affected or affects the microbiome and how much the microbiome affects all these different diseases, including cancer, you were saying. Is that right? Absolutely. So if you look at, um, you remember I said that inflammation is critical. Now, inflammation is one of the host defenses against disease. So you need some inflammation, but you need it where you need it, of the kind of inflammation that you need, and you need it to stop when the problem's been solved. Otherwise, it's going to damage your own tissue. So everywhere in the body that we have these chronic diseases or non-communicable diseases, they, are, they only exist as long as inflammation 
supports them. So asthma, you required essentially requires a, a low-level ongoing lung inflammation, psoriasis, a skin inflammation, uh, inflammatory bowel, GI tract inflammation supports that. And if you could actually stop those inflammatory processes completely, you do a lot to reduce the, the symptoms of those diseases. But part of the problem is, where do you get cancer? Well, guess what? With psoriasis, which is skin insult for decades, that we manage medically, you're, you know, the psoriasis group is most likely to have skin and, and lymphoid cancer, so immune-related cancer, but also but skin cancer. Asthmatics actually have a lower level of some cancer risk, but lung cancer is higher because that's the tissue getting insulted. Inflammatory bowel, it's GI tract cancer, same with celiac. So the tissue in which you have the chronic disease where inflammation is not being controlled, in the end, you're at a higher risk of cancer. And I have to tell you, physicians at the moment are managing symptoms, but they're not really doing anything uh, that is going to address that risk of cancer at the moment. And so that is why we have this progression, this march toward more chronic diseases, more drugs, more medical therapy needs if we just continue on the same path. So it's better to prevent children from ever having these diseases. It's better to prevent children from becoming obese, having type 1 diabetes or asthma. Um, but if you can't do that, we need to treat for a lifetime perspective, which starts and stops with the microbiome. Mm -hmm. you, you've laid this out really well in the book. I recommend that everybody go uh, read this book or get the audio of this book. Um, so since the book's come out, what has been something that you – or what are you working on at the present – or what some of the other research that's recent uh, that's really uh, uh, noteworthy? Well, there are, uh, first of all, I should say the, there are some wonderful breakthroughs. The microbiome research is, is extensive, it's deep uh, and, and broad, and we're, we're seeing these connections now with, with uh, uh, things outside the body, soil, atmosphere, and the like. The effect on Neurological development and neural behavior is a major breakthrough. So uh, there are groups such as uh, John Crinan's group at University College Cork and, and others that have written books and published papers that uh, are, uh, are showing the importance of gut microbes to neurological health. And again, we can we can treat a lot of neural behavior, neurological diseases. Uh, microbially, because we now understand uh, really how important the gut is for the brain and the neurological system and how the gut microbes are so critical in what happens with that gut-brain connection. So that's a huge breakthrough. There are the, the importance of environment and microbial changes is, has been coming out. So for example, if you're depleted in your microbiome, what happens? Well, you get microbes from the environment. And we now understand that even experimental research with lab rodents, that it is exceedingly important where those animals were being housed and where they came from as much as their chromosomal genetics. So there's some wonderful work from Aaron Erickson at University of Missouri who's shown that 
when you when when you have a rodent facility and you're doing uh, experimental science uh, with lab animals, those those rats and mice actually acquire microbes from the human handlers, the technicians, the people that are working with them. So because they are in a very kind of sterile environment or one that's not microbial rich, they're not running around in the wild, they're, they're a little bit depleted in their microbes and they will pick up human microbes. Now, howler monkeys in the zoo uh, eat a very restricted diet. In the U.S. zoos, it's usually just one plant species. If you were to go to Vietnam, they have 57 plant species they eat. So what happens in zoos? Well, they become humanized microbially. They're picking up their animal handlers' microbes. And that may not always be a good thing for their health. So you should be aware that that's how malleable your microbiome is. So Personally, and from a standpoint of working with healthcare providers, we need to be managing our microbes. You don't want to have your body be depleted and indiscriminately picking up microbes from places you don't want it. So one could argue that if you're going to have a hospital visit, you better prep for it and you better treat afterwards in terms of your microbe population because there are probably some microbes in the hospital you don't want to pick up. Um, and again, that comes down to um, birth as well and understanding the importance of the birth environment and what the baby is seated with. So we need to manage our microbes because otherwise uh, it's going to be haphazard and it may be, um, you know, again, you – uh, there may be probiotics that, uh, you know, now I think about, well, maybe I want to take a probiotic before I go into this hotel room, you know, and that is not to say that every, there's one probiotic that's good for everyone. There's not. And that is not to say that all probiotics are great. They're not. You can waste a lot of money on those products, but can, do probiotics work? Absolutely. Or can they work? Yes. 30, 40 years of poultry industry survival, prove it. And in uh, in our own personal case, my wife and I have been able to find regimes of probiotics that have just completely turned our health around. So yes, they can work, but they have to be vetted like anything else. Mm-hmm. So for the, the lay person, what are some of the, the things that you would recommend? Like I, I know that people ask you, what probiotics should I take and Maybe that's not the right question. What What are some of the things that people can do in their lives, pra- practical applications, take away? Well, one of the things is I I contend that we you know we have uh, physicians will do annual annual checkups. In fact, I'm due for mine coming up here pretty soon, and um, they'll often get blood work done, or so depending on your age, they'll they'll collect annual data on you and they use that as a benchmark for whether something's changed year to year or how you're doing. Well, we need microbial uh, microbiome analysis and and microbiome analysis is not perfect. Uh, it's progressed dramatically and it's significantly better every year, significantly better almost every quarter in terms of the quality of the information and how that information can be used to assess where you are in terms of body integrity, and health and and potential risk of disease. So we need annual checkups that include a microbiome profile. And so the physician can see where you are and they can also see whether their treatment might work or not 
because the micro, microbial metabolism will in large part determine that. And they can also see whether something's changed along the way as they're evaluating you. Um, so that should be a routine part of your health profile, but also personally, you you can make a decision that you if if you want that analysis. So my wife and I use that, and I can tell you, uh, in, in the past, my wife had a, a prescription drug. She she was prescribed, and it was supposed to have a pretty narrow window of, of effects. And in the end, it we could see that it completely obliterated her microbiome, and it took her about nine months of probiotic use to restore that. Uh, and of course, in the meantime, she's at, at risk of infectious diseases and some other problems. So I think, uh, first of all, know where you are. You know, maybe you don't need a probiotic. Uh, maybe you're just fine and you're balanced extre- extremely well and you're well, uh, you know, you have a robust microbiome. But know where you are and then know what might be useful. So that's the best recommendation. And, uh, and again, we have to understand that we have different ancestral backgrounds. So uh, if my ancestors came primarily from Europe and maybe Africa, uh, that's different from someone whose ancestors came from Asia and they were growing different crops. They were living with different soil composition, different soil microbes over millennia. And so for me to all of a sudden try to install in my body a very healthy Asian-derived microbiome might not be as easy a take or a transplant, you might say, compared to installing one that goes back to where my ancestors used to roam around and dig in the dirt. So uh, that's one of the reasons why, um, you know, there can be there can be things that are broadly useful, no question. Products can be broadly useful, but there is no single ideal microbiome. It depends to on our ancestry and our long-term human superorganism history. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things we've uh, done recently is uh, increase our fermented food intake and especially uh, kefir, milk kefir. I, I read some studies saying that that's actually a systemic anti-inflammatory, plus it's got all the probiotics. And we've actually had over the last little while uh, comments, people saying, oh, what, what have you done to your skin? It's it's uh, looking really healthy. So there's there's obviously some of the things that we can do on uh, sort of a take-home level to really um, encourage our, our microbiome. Do you, do you recommend fermented foods? I do. I know some people have issues with risk of various yeast infections and the like, but I think that there are there are fermented foods that have been a part of our ancestry, you know, uh, and uh, again, whether it's uh, uh, sauerkraut or kefirs or kombucha or kimchi or, you know, everybody's had fermented foods. And it's, I describe in the Human Superorganism book how the, the food revolution caused some unintended consequences. And losing connection to fermented foods was one of those. So retrieving that in a useful way is helpful. And uh, I think what you're noting is is another important thing that people should not go to a food or a probiotic and just take it because some particular paper said, oh, this helped somebody or this was useful. They need to also evaluate what it's doing in their own body. So if they are not seeing beneficial changes, uh, then that's 
you know, they may be wasting money or, or could be doing something else that would be more useful personally. So when you take something and you understand what's in it and you understand what it might do, and then you or other people are noticing benefits that, are, that they can see, they're visual in this case, um, that's golden. So seeing it in your own body, seeing seeing the benefit in your own body, along with understanding why that could is likely to happen, is kind of the golden combination in my mind. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. Well, I think we'll uh, we'll land it there. This hour has gone very quickly, but uh, how can people connect with you um, and get your book or any of the uh, the other things that you have produced? Well, uh, they can find the human superorganism on Amazon or through uh, Dutton Penguin Random House, the publisher. A lot of other venues should be uh, bookstores uh, and the like, uh, many online outlets. They can find the audiobook, a wonderful, wonderful narrative by an uh, uh, actor who's done a number of great audiobooks and is also a soap opera uh, actor as well. And, and a lot of people tell me how much they enjoy the audiobook. And uh, they can connect with me through my email, my Cornell email. And that is my three initials, RRD, the number one, because I am that old. I go back to email origins. Uh, so RRD1 at Cornell, C-O-R-N-E-L-L dot E-D-U. And I'd love to hear from people and uh, encourage you to take a look at the book if you get a chance and watch for our next book because we are planning another one that I think uh, will show the natural ramifications of extending this way beyond just health. Fantastic. Well, we'll have all of the links up there in the show notes. Dr. Rodney Dietert, thank you very much for your time and for being on The Probiotic Life. Thank you so much, Ben. Cheers. There you go. All about the microbiome. And that book is actually a really good audiobook. I recently listened to that. So you can check out that link in the show notes. And you might have noticed that my audio wasn't great in this episode. I had the microphone set up different than usual, but I want to give a shout out to my brother Dan at Clenner Productions for touching it up, making it a little bit better to listen to. But thank you very much all for taking this journey with us on The Probiotic Life. We always love hearing from you, so reach out to us and let us know what you like or what you want to hear. Also, would you take two minutes to give us a rating and review, as that would really help the podcast. So, may the beneficial microbes be with you, and until next time, cheers! Thank you for listening to The Probiotic Life. You can find us on Facebook at The Probiotic Life, on Instagram, The Probiotic Life, and on our website, theprobiotic.life. 